0: Hello and welcome to the latest Lancet podcast. Richard Lane with you here on Friday, April the 13th.
1: This week in the Lancet News, sexual violence in the Solomon Islands, uncontacted tribes in the Amazon and mental health in Ireland. And we
0: give you a rundown of this week's news from the Lancet Oncology. Yes, the Lancet News, and you'll be able to listen to the first edition of it after some content highlights from the latest issue of the Lancet, which is dated April the 14th to the 20th. The lead editorial this week takes a close look at South Africa's five-year plan for HIV, with a welcome focus on tuberculosis co-infection. Some terrific reading in the perspective section, with information all about a world doctor's orchestra, and everything you needed to know about gout and the birth of the cocktail. In research, we have articles on stent thrombosis, concerning drug eluting and bare metal stents, a randomised control trial about type 2 diabetes therapy, also on internet-based cognitive behaviour therapy for teenagers with chronic fatigue syndrome, and also the effect of vitamin supplementation for children with pneumonia in Afghanistan. Two seminars this week as well, one about cancer with unknown origin, and another on retinoblastoma. Also to mention a review about modern treatments for haemophilia. This is also covered in a short editorial this week. But now, let's hear more about the launch of The Lancet News.
2: I'm Mario Tristadoulou. And I'm Dara Mohamedy. Last week, Amnesty International released a report entitled Human Rights on the Margin, Roma in Europe. The report marked International Roma Day, a day set out to celebrate Romani culture and raise awareness of the issues facing Romani people. The issues outlined in Amnesty's report paint a bleak picture, describing a cycle of prejudice, poverty and human rights violations that deny Roma of rights to housing, employment, education and healthcare. Romani people, who are believed to have first arrived in Europe from northern India in the 9th century, now number 10 to 12 million in EU countries, 70% of whom live in Central and Eastern Europe, with large populations also living in Western Europe, especially in Spain, France and the UK. Romani people have had a long history of persecution since settling in Europe, and the report urges European governments to put a halt to the systemic racial stereotyping that keep Roma on the margins of society. In some countries, for example, Romani children are segregated into separate schools that offer inferior education. In turn, when these children enter the labour market, they are severely disadvantaged. Unable to find jobs, millions of Roma cannot access better housing, pay the costs of their children's education, or afford medical care. And such exclusion is seriously harming Romani health. A 2003 report by the World Bank estimated that life expectancy of Roma in Central and Eastern Europe is about 10 years lower than that for the rest of the population. And a report from the UN Development Programme stated that in Hungary, Slovakia and the Czech Republic infant mortality rates of Roma are twice those of the general population. Some Roma populations have been forced to live in squalid and unhygienic temporary locations next to dumping grounds, with no access to running water or sewage which further exacerbates what is already a dire situation for one of the largest and oldest ethnic minorities in Europe. And from minority communities in Europe to uncontacted tribes in the
1: Amazon, the Peruvian government has authorised the expansion of the country's largest gas project into indigenous territories known to be home to many uncontacted tribes. The charity, Survival for Tribal People, has stated that Peru's government is ignoring new UN guidelines on the protection of uncontacted tribes in the Amazon. The UN report supports the right of uncontacted tribes to be left alone. Survival's director, Stephen Corrie, said that Peru needs to read the UN's report and respect those who wish to be left alone before entire tribes are lost forever. And the potential loss of these tribes is not an exaggeration. For example, in the 1980s, Shell explored for oil in a remote part of the Peruvian Amazon. They cleared paths through previously untouched rainforest that was inhabited by uncontacted tribes. These paths were then used by loggers who subsequently made first contact with a tribe known as the Nahua. The result was disastrous. Epidemics and severe food shortages followed, wiping out nearly 60% of the Nahua. Uncontacted tribes lack immunity to diseases that are common in the general population, and so are extremely susceptible to them. Therefore, such diseases can spread rapidly, devastating these vulnerable populations. The UN introduced ILO Convention 169 in 1989 to protect the land rights of indigenous people. However, only 20 countries, including Peru, have ratified this convention.
2: Fifteen uncontacted tribes are thought to remain in Peru. Elsewhere, the World Bank has rated Solomon Islands as having the highest rate in the world for sexual violence against women. In its latest report on gender equality and development, the World Bank said that 64% of women reported they had been a victim of domestic violence. Andrew Mason from the World Bank said that the sexual violence was bad throughout the Pacific, but especially so in the Solomon Islands. The first challenge set out to combat such violence against women is to develop proper legislation. Whereas over the past decade or two, most countries have implemented laws that criminalise domestic violence, Solomon Islands has yet to do so. And it seems that more needs to be done other than just implementing laws. A rather disturbing finding of the report was that 70% of women on the Solomon Islands say that, under certain circumstances, it is acceptable for husbands to beat their wives. This World Bank report is one of a number of reports of sexual violence on the Solomon Islands one of which was from the UN Special Rapporteur on Violence Against Women, who in March this year raised concerns about the sexual exploitation of children in the Solomon Islands, citing alarming reports of young girls being abused by employees of fishing and logging industries in remote areas of the country. England has
1: now banned the public display of tobacco. This means that packets of cigarettes and other tobacco products will have to stay hidden below the counters in large shops and supermarkets, Smaller shops have until 2015 to alter their displays in accordance with the new legislation. In view of evidence that suggests that cigarette displays can encourage young people to smoke, the ban aims to reduce the temptation for children and teenagers to smoke. In the UK, for example, about 5% of children aged between 11 and 15 are regular smokers. More than 300,000 children under the age of 16 try smoking each year, and 39% of current smokers say that they will smoke irregularly before the age of 16. The number of smokers in the UK has continued to fall, from around 45% of adults in 1974 to about 21% today. However, the rate of this decline has slowed down in recent years. But despite this, the UK government hopes to see a drop in the proportion of adults smoking to less than 19% by the end of 2015. Several countries, including Canada, Ireland, Iceland, and Finland, have implemented a similar ban with promising results. In Canada, for example, the ban has led to a decline in smoking, especially among young people. When it comes to anti-smoking laws, England has some of the strictest laws in the world. For example, tobacco advertising was banned in 2002, smoking was banned from public spaces such as bars and restaurants in 2007, and graphic warnings about the dangers of smoking were introduced to cigarette packets in 2008. Also part of the government's strategy on tobacco control is the current, hard-hitting advertising campaign depicting a child shrouded by the mother's cigarette smoke, serving as a stark warning about the dangers of second-hand smoke. Consultation on plain cigarette packaging will also begin this year in the UK, which has so far been implemented
2: only by Australia amid much controversy. China is the world's largest producer of tobacco, and is struggling to control tobacco smoking, with about 300 million smokers in China and an annual tobacco-related death rate of 1.2 million people a year. Odd, then, that the Chinese Ministry of Science and Technology is considering shortlisting an application from China Tobacco for its annual science prize. The tobacco company applied to have its research into the supposedly less harmful Chinese-style cigarettes included on the list of initiatives being considered. The company claimed that these cigarettes, which combine tobacco with medicinal herbs, are less harmful than normal cigarettes because they contain less nicotine and tar. But Jiang Yun, from the Chinese Centre of Disease Control and Prevention, who is one of many health and tobacco control experts to voice their outrage, said that there is no medical evidence that Chinese-style cigarettes do less harm to human health than do normal cigarettes. He also claimed that the development of these cigarettes was actually aimed at improving the taste of cigarettes with additives in a bid to promote consumption. In 2003, China signed the WHO Framework Convention on Tobacco Control and made it effective as of January 2006. Under this framework, China is committed to banning deceptive and misleading descriptions such as low tar on labels. Furthermore, Chinese law bans any research activity that harms national security, social benefits and health, leading many opponents to claim that the ministry's decision is not only counterproductive to the country's anti-smoking efforts, but also an offence to the law. And the riposte from the Ministry of Science and Technology? That the application by China tobacco is in its early stages, and that tobacco is a legitimate industry, and new research into the sector is praiseworthy if it can reduce the harm brought about by smoking. The Ministry set out a 40-day consultation period on the possible consideration of China Tobacco's application, which will close at the end of this month. Meanwhile in Ireland,
1: the number of involuntary adult admissions to mental health services has increased. According to the Mental Health Commission's annual report, between 2010 and 2011, the number of these admissions increased by about 5%, to just over 2,000. Furthermore, 326 children were admitted to approved centres, however a third of these children were sent to adult units, which continues to concern the Commission. The report also proposed that the Mental Health Act be changed so that electroconvulsive therapy can no longer be given to patients who are unwilling to consent, and that the therapy can only be given to those who freely agree. Currently, the Mental Health Act allows electroconvulsive therapy, which involves electrical induction of seizures in anaesthetised patients, to be administered without consent if a situation is urgent and it will save a person's life or stop their disorder from deteriorating. Countries such as Ireland and Greece have been hit particularly hard by the economic crisis. Such a widespread crisis could have many effects on the mental health of a population. Between 2007 and 2008, the suicide rate increased by 17% in Greece and 13% in Ireland. And data from Greece show that individuals facing serious economic hardship are at most at risk for developing major depressive episodes. The financial pressures that Ireland face will make increased investment in mental health challenging. But an economic argument for further investment does exist. For example, in 2006, the cost of mental health problems in Ireland exceeded 3 billion euros, over 1 billion euros for the cost of health care, and over 2 billion euros from lost economic output resulting from unemployment, premature mortality and unpaid work.
2: In the Lancet's World Report section, John Maurice looks into WHO's latest plan to eradicate yours, and Paul Webster reports on mercury poisoning in Colombia. The news in The Lancet Oncology this week includes reports investigating the effects of the Fukushima nuclear disaster one year on, comparisons of the cost of cancer care and survival in the USA and Europe, and the uncertainty faced by researchers regarding global science funding. Thanks, Dara. Well, that's all we have time for this week. I'm Mario Christodoulou. And I'm Dara Mohamedy.
0: Well, that's all for this week. Many thanks for listening. Don't forget to sign up to The Lancet News. We'll see you next time.